Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, part of the New Books Network. I am the host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Ellen Whalen smith Associate Professor of Writing at the University of Southern California. Her book, The Angel in the Marketplace, Ad Women Jean Wade Renlob and the Selling of America, published by the University of Chicago Press, is our topic of conversation. The author follows the career of ad woman Jean Wade Renlob, who created the mid-20th century advertising campaigns selling consumer products to the average American housewife. More than products, she sold a dream of domesticity and prosperity delivered through free market capitalism and a Christian corporate order. The market offered an equitable allocation of products and resources to create the most efficient and comfortable society. Women contributed to America as patriotic housewives engaged in educated consumption and a moral and moral market choices. Rimball produced some of the most successful award-winning campaigns of the century for brands such as Betty Crocker, Campbell's Soup, and Chiquita Banana. At the end of her career, Rinlaw began to question the ideas she had come to promote and to doubt the free market as a solution to social ills. Here is my conversation with Ellen Wayland Smith. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Ellen Wayland Smith. Hello, Ellen. Hello. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts about your book with the audience. Uh, first, we want you to tell the audience something about yourself and how you came to write Angel in the Marketplace. Yeah, so it actually, uh, while I was researching my first book, which was um, Oneida. From Free Love Utopia to the Well Set Table, about the Oneida Community Commune turned uh, silverware company. Um, when I was researching that, it turned out that um, the subject of my new book, Jean uh, Rinlaub, was the advertising agent at BBDNO who did the wartime advertising for Oneida's silverware during um, in the 1940s. Um, and so I, you know had a chapter in that first book on her, but I, when I went to see her archive at the Schlesinger library in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it was so extensive and interesting that I decided it sort of deserved a book unto itself. Well, I interviewed you for that first book that you talked about. That's right. And that was, uh, that was a fabulous book, which got me interested in the second book that you uh, published. <laughs> right. So tell me about Jean. We're going to call her Jean because she has a difficult yes. last name. She does. She does not have a, yeah. And she always used her maiden name as a middle name. So Jean Wade Rinlaub, which is not, doesn't roll off the tongue. No, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> so tell us about Jean yeah. and her early, uh, her early life yeah. and how it set her up to become this, a major influence in advertising. Yeah. So she was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1904. Um, her father and mother were sort of one generation removed from the farm. Her father was a self-made man who um, went to uh, business colleges, as they were called back then. They were just starting as a phenomenon business colleges in the uh, late 19th century. And he started his own business college in Lancaster. And so Jean was actually homeschooled 
from the time she was five, I think. I think she went to maybe one or two years of, of regular public school, but her father um, just sort of sat her up on uh, a chair next to him at his uh, Pennsylvania Business College and taught her everything she knew. So she was, by the time she was 16, she had graduated and was teaching at the business college and then got her first sort of outside break when she was hired as secretary to the head of the advertising department at Armstrong Cork, uh, which was a major uh, floor manufacturer in uh, Lancaster. Um, yeah. Now she, now she, uh, Robert Wade had some, it wasn't just when we think of business college, you know, you think about people are learning what stenography or right. mm-hmm. shorthand mm-hmm. principles of accounting or something like that. Yes. Uh, basic, just basic business skills. Right. But Robert Wade, her father's thinking had a very specific ideological, very American way of thinking about the world in terms of melding sort of Christianity and capitalism. Right. Right. So can you talk about his thinking on that and how, how that reflected? And you spent some time in the first couple of chapter, chapters yeah. talking about uh, the development of this connection between Christianity, capitalism, and the self-made man and right. uh, success. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, one of, the, one of the interesting things about the archive that I think uh, helped me write the early chapters was that in addition to all the sort of material that Jean had saved, um, the promotional material from her father's business college, um, she also saved these sermons that he had written for, they were Presbyterian. Um, and he sort of led a Sunday school and it seems like a, a sort of um, a men's group within the church where he would give these uh, sermons. And so there were these type, typed up sermons. Um, so I got to get a sense not only of him as a businessman, but also as a religious person and the way in which those two sort of worlds intersected for him. Um, and basically, you know, as I explained in the book, um, he was a prosperity gospel believer. Um, the prosperity gospel being uh, a sort of watered down version of um, the Protestant work ethic, where the idea is that, you know, the more you the war and the harder you work, uh, the more God will give you uh, your just returns, your just rewards. And that gets sort of translated in the American prosperity gospel into um, financial rewards, right? Monetary rewards on earth. Um, and so he really, when you read the promotional literature that he sends out for um, to recruit students for the business college, it's very much based in this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, making the most of your God-given talents. Um, it really sort of presages a Dale Carnegie-esque um, you know, power within, you've got to reach into your inner power, which is sort of ambiguously. And once it gets translated into business speak, uh, both sort of God, the God, the, the germ of God in you or the seed of God in you, but also your uh, expansive potential to, to be successful and to make money. Okay. So this has a long history and you, you kind of unpack it in the book. Yeah. So can you tell uh, Jean Wade, yeah. when she First, she was working with her father at the business college, and she just yeah. absorbed all, all this ideology, right. Right. Uh, and she took it on to her next job. How did she advance? How did she set herself up, or what was it about her that allowed her right. to advance in a very male-oriented it's sort a, of business yeah. environment? Well, I think uh, you know the first, the first thing is that um, at this point, uh, women were as um, – were as sort of likely to go to business college as men were. Um, what again, year is this? What this year is, is this? So this is business college just sort of gets started 
um, you know, they're sort of in reaction to the industrial revolution and this sort of movement away from production and towards, um, you know, the more, uh, uh, consumption and marketing side of the capitalist mechanism. Um, and so once you get this sort of national, uh, with the building of the railroads and so, so forth, once you get national uh, sort of production and distribution chains going in the United States, there's this incredible need for paperwork people, people who, you know, lawyers, legal assistants, um, you know, people who can write up contracts, people who can just actually keep uh, the administrative work of a business going. Um, and so these uh, commercial colleges spring up in order to meet this need. And it's actually seen as a sort of ladylike profession. So women who need a job, but who are, you know, sort of too genteel to work in manufacturing or to take a, uh, a working class job, saw this as a way to sort of sally into the middle class. Um, so it was both women and men. So the fact that she got her degree from this college and became a secretary was not unusual. Uh, a lot of women were secretaries. Uh, the reason that she was able to sort of move up into the executive levels of advertising, however, was the fact that advertising was one sphere of corporate America where women actually had a place from the beginning. And this was because uh, advertising companies or advertising firms recognized early on that women were their um, the, the majority audience, that women... Uh, housekeepers, ho uh, housewives were the people who disposed of a family's disposable income. And so they had to, uh, companies and advertising uh, firms for them had to gear their advertising towards women. And so they hired women just because they figured, you know, a woman will know how to talk to women. So um, the fact that she was able to advance as much as she did had something to do with the fact that she, she was a woman who convinced people, I know how to talk to the average American housewife. Now, these uh, women who are working in advertising or working in offices and they're secretaries and yeah. I guess they're copywriters. Yeah. Yes. Th this kind of work. Uh, these are mostly young women, right? Isn't it? Was it expected that a woman, when she married, would leave the workforce? Yes, absolutely. These were um, uh, a lot of them were women, you know, like Jean, who started working when she was 16. And uh, it was the expect expectation for a lot of them that they would work until they found a husband and then they would leave the workforce. Um, and when she moved to New York, she, she took her job at BBDNO in 1930. Uh, when she married and moved to, uh, she lived in suburban New Jersey and commuted into her her job at BBDNO, uh, yeah, she was um, not. Uh, she was she was in the minority as a married woman with a family. Most of the women that she worked with, the secretaries and the copywriters, were single young women. Why? How did she? How did she balance that? Uh, how did she take care of that between having a family and, and working? Yeah, well, how she got incredibly lucky, which um, was that she had two children fairly fairly quickly after she got married. But she had an aunt who. Um, she was quite close to back in Lancaster who didn't have uh, a family of her own. And so she moved into their house in, in New Jersey and, and basically became a nanny, a full-time nanny child, uh, child caregiver. Um, so Jean didn't have to worry about that. She was you know, free to devote herself to her work full-time. Did you get any sense from looking at the record, um, how she view her herself as a working mother? Because it was very unusual at the time. Not, not too many did, did that? How does she, how does she explain it to herself? Or did she? Is there any indication that she felt any tension about yeah. it? Or was she totally comfortable with it? No, you know she, um, she absolutely felt um, 
that she had to explain it, I think, to herself, um, because what she was doing as an advertiser, she was working mainly, uh, you know, with women as her audience. She was working mainly on domestic products uh, like cake mixes and silverware and uh, children's clothes and Campbell's soup, um, all these sort of domestic products. And what she was basically doing was sort of telling housewives how to be better housewives and mothers. Um, and, you know, the obvious contradiction is that she's not there. She's not in the house doing the very things that she's telling housewives to do. So the, the way that she gets around this is um, by saying that what she is doing is service uh, and service, uh, the idea of doing service for, for a public, for a public good has uh, a sort of old, um, you know, has, has a history in, in America of being something that women can do and that excuses women from being in the public sphere. So, um, you know, even in the 19th century, women who uh, suddenly found uh, with the increase of industrialization and the sort of split between the public sphere where the men are supposed to work and the domestic sphere where the women are supposed to stay home, lots of women get involved in what they called community housekeeping, which was reaching out beyond the home to um, sort of take care of public um, issues like, you know, poverty or temperance, uh, advocation, uh, taking care of things that were looked at as sort of blight in the larger community uh, and that women were naturally sort of suited because of their caretaking nature to do. Um, and so Jean basically said, you know, to herself and sometimes in articles that she wrote about, you know, juggling the, the two the two roles, that she was in a service position. She was doing service to the women of America, helping them to have a better time, to raise better families, uh, and that this was wholly consistent with her uh, domestic, with the domestic nature of women. It was just a slightly different way of interpreting that role. Okay. How did, now she was in the an advertising agency. How do advertisers, which is interesting to me, how advertisers, advertising agencies and advertisers uh, saw them, their role in America and society and what their job was in terms of within capitalism and within a uh, consumer society. And it, they definitely had a moral, they took a moral stance about what they were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's hard for us to imagine this, this far into, into capitalism um, and, you know, neoliberal capitalism, but at the beginning when, um, you know, in, in the wake of the industrial revolution, when suddenly, you know, the, the productive capacity of the country um, exploded and uh, it seemed for the first time to people that we were shifting from a, a scarcity economy where people would always be struggling to make ends meet and to food, you know, feed and clothe themselves to uh, a surplus economy where if you could just get the industrial mechanism uh, orchestrated right, uh, there would be enough for everybody that no one would have to go wanting. And there, there really was a sort of utopian idea that corporate capitalism, corporate capitalism in particular, because it had a national scope because it wasn't just local uh, and because it sort of envisioned looping the entire country and maybe eventually the world into this uh, production and distribution network where everybody's needs would be met. Um, it was this almost religious uh, sense that this would be, this would be a utopian sort of, um, heaven on earth. Um, and so corporate early, early corporate leaders, um, in the 1890s, uh, through the 1920s, basically up until the, the market crash, which was when the corporate, uh, reputation took a hit, they were really seen as partners in, uh, the progress, uh, in progressive politics in America, that they would work with leaders. They would work with politicians in order to bring about prosperity for all. So it's the whole thing about, 
if the consumer could be encouraged to buy the right products through consumption and selection of the right products, they they would contribute to the overwhelm the well being of the nation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And Jean Jean will say this uh, often in her letters uh, or in her, you know, her writings and her interviews that um, what advertisers do is they facilitate the distribution of goods because they find out what needs to be sold and they match up those uh, object. They will match up those commodities with people who want to buy them. And in her mind, this means that the, the mechanism never gets broken. You know, people don't get laid off of their work because there's always a market for their, their items. It's, it's, it's much, it's a much more sort of high minded thing than just selling. Right. Okay. So she, she developed, or she kind of came up with her own way of doing test marketing of products. Right. Um, And, you know, getting testimonials and seeing how, what women would choose of one product over another. Can you talk about, her, what that entailed? Yeah. So, um, I mean, people were, uh, she started this sort of, yeah, in the 19, she started fairly soon after she got to BBDNO. Um, and what she did was she, uh, got all the women who worked at BBDNO, which was a, which is a very large firm. Um, and she put them into two groups. She put them into sort of 18 to 24 year olds who she called the junior council, and then the older women, a smaller group, she um, who were married, she put into, um, I think it was called the the Mrs. Council, uh, and she basically just sort of used them as impromptu guinea pigs. She called them guinea pigs to test all of her clients' products on. So that meant everything from um, they had a test kitchen at BBDNO, so they would cook things. Uh, they would use, you know, for instance, Betty Crocker cake mixes and and um, experiment with that, and then she would taste test it on the on the women who worked in the office. Uh, but probably more important than just the, the tasting was she would, she would test, she would poll them to find out what their sort of wants and needs were, what their attitudes were towards family, towards marriage, towards children. And then she would use this data and uh, it, it helped her to sort of craft her, her copy for, for actually selling the products. Now she also uh, was involved and the way women were marketed to, there were like two two hooks that you talk about. One was the health, and the other one was beauty. Um, right. You know, kind of a, appealing to people's wanting to be healthy and people wanting to be beautiful. Women wanted mm-hmm. to be beautiful. How did that? How did she work with that? And can you talk a little bit about the history of that? Um. Yeah. Well. So she. Some of her earliest work for BBDNO, where she had. Uh, a pretty big success was for a, a makeup company called Hutnut um, Marvelous Makeup. And she, um, yeah, it was, it's very much, uh, at the time, makeup was very much tied into um, Hollywood movie stars and the the best, you know, sort of the, the most popular makeup, the makeup that got the most um, sales were was makeup that could get endorsements from Hollywood stars. So she was sort of instrumental in getting Hollywood endorsements from Dolores Del Rio among others, um, for this, this Hudnut Marvelous Makeup. Um, and the idea that um, it was tied to Hollywood glamour is, was very much part of its selling uh, point, right? And she uses this in her, in her ad copy that um, they play, the, the advertising companies in crafting their cop- copy would play on this idea of the sort of rags to riches um, 
Cinderella story that uh, was familiar from Hollywood that, you know, Hollywood would just discover these girls in the sort of far away, you know, uh, places in America, these little towns in America and would bring them to Hollywood and they would become princesses. Um, and that whole sort of mythology of, you know, being raised from a, a simple uh, regular girl to, you know, a queen uh, was something that she was able to, to play on in her cosmetic um her cosmetic advertisements. Yeah, you talk about the makeover. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. How that became very strategic. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in magazines and different th- ways to show, this is what she looked like before and look how right. she looks now after she bought right. all these products. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting that, the, you know, that the makeover actually has a history. It, yeah, right. I think it, it's first sort of, uh, its first example was in Mademoiselle magazine in 1936, uh, where they, you know, they do the made over woman and they sort of show what you can do, how you can take, you know, these beauty products and transform yourself into a magical, you know, being. And yeah, this, this definitely caught on because it was part of the the zeitgeist too. this idea of, and very much part of the Amer- the fabric of the American dream that you can, uh, you know, sort of take the humble, humble beginnings, any Americans humble be- beginnings. And from that you can spring, uh, up into a, a higher economic bracket or a higher beauty bracket or whatever higher bracket it is you want to achieve. And it was also touching on just sort of a pre kind of our archetypal type kind of mm-hmm. image of the, the princess who, you know, is beautiful and because she's beautiful, she will be loved and, right. and rescued. So it kind of played into some very deep, deep Western images of, of, of beauty. Yeah. Of beauty uh-huh. and romance and love, it's all kind of together. It was all kind uh, of together, yeah, absolutely. So, at she at that time, also there's a the development later on on the idea that uh, social scientists are are doing work to try to define the average American. Mm-hmm. You know, by which all Americans sort of measure themselves. Do you fall within this norm? Right. Uh, of what is normal. And she, she worked with that in terms of what women with, what, what the average, you know, normal right. housewife right. would be, would be like, can you yeah. talk about how she worked with that? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the, uh, the sort of in the 1930s, sort of in the wake of the depression, there was a, a, a push in America to discover, Yes, exactly. What what the average American looks like. There was sort of a questing for um, a way of defining um, a national type or archetype. Um, and historians have hypothesized this happened at this point for a number of reasons, including, you know, sort of massive influxes from Europe, uh, I- immigration from Europe, which um, substantially changed the uh, historically sort of white Anglo-Saxon character of the nation, how to, um, you know, how to deal with and assimilate these new, uh, populations. Um, so yes, she, uh, that th- there be, was during this time, a, a sort of push among not only, um, sort of social scientists, but also, um, uh, polling firms to, figure out what the average American was and did and where they lived and what they looked like. Um, And a a book by Sarah Igo, which is called The Averaged American, which is an excellent book on this topic, talks about how the the sort of composite American that uh, emerged from all of these polls and studies was white, middle-class, and male. 
Um, and that came from a variety of, you know, sort of skews, uh, ways in which the, the testing protocols were skewed or the polling protocols were skewed. Um, but this idea was then picked up by corporations, by advertising uh, firms uh, in particular. And Gene always relied on these national opinion polls and, um, and sort of marketing uh, surveys and it, that was used that was taken very much as sort of a definitive instead instead of being sort of a instead of questioning whether the the white middle class male was actually the average American it was taken just as a, a sort of ideal prototype and everything was then marketed to that sort of fictional ideal um, and so this influences all kinds of things in in Jean's work from the fact that the makeup that she sold uh, was exclusively uh, marketed to white women and whiteness was one of the defining characteristics of beauty. Um, again, in sort of keeping with the idea that the white, the white woman, middle-class buyer is the, is the target consumer. Um, but it goes, you know, all the way up to, um, her, her later advertising for silverware and for, for cakes, the, the sort of default, uh, average American is always a white housewife. So it's an aspirational model, even though it's many women were, even though many women were working or they weren't white right. or they were uh, lower class, right, exactly. they aspire yeah. to this. So you don't right. necessarily have to be in the group to be influenced by it. Exactly. Yeah. To um, it was it was aspirational. Um, it didn't actually correspond to an average American. America was much more diverse and heterogeneous than this made it look. But it became it became something to aspire to if you weren't that that you could always try to be that. Um, yeah, and it involved a lot of sort of self delusion. I think on, on the part of a lot of people, um, especially since uh, increasingly, as you as you say, women were working outside of the home. They. Um, uh, were you know working to to make ends meet, um, and they were. Uh, Jean recognizes this. She she calls them two job women, um, women who try to hold down a house but also um, work to to make money. Um, but that was always sort of what what you really wanted to do was to to be the full time housewife uh, with enough time to you know sort of lavish attention on your on your family. And so even if your reality didn't include what wasn't capable of including that because for financial reasons you needed to work, it was still a very attractive sort of ideal. And it was pushed as w- what everyone was doing anyway. It was, you know, again, sort of pushed as a, as a fact rather than a aspirational fiction. Okay. Now you've got the, you've got the great depression and you've got world war two that really changed the situation for everybody and right. particularly women. So how did, did the message change, particularly during the world war two era about what a woman was supposed to be and what she should aspire to? Um, it, I mean, it changed to the extent that, uh, you know, women were recruited into the workforce in fields where they previously had been excluded, um, most notably heavy, heavy manufacturing. So, um, you know, jobs that had previously just been held by men, like uh, in automobile uh, manufacturing or munitions manufacturing, those were suddenly held by Rosie, the you know, the proverbial Rosie, the Riveters. Um, and for the most part, they were, uh, they were taught or they were sort of, you know, told that they could have these jobs as, as uh, sort of support roles for their men who were at the front. Um and then when the war was over, there, there was a big push to get them out, to get the women out of these 
uh, lucrative jobs back into the the home so that the men who came home could uh, reintegrate and not face unemployment. Um, and this was difficult because the women who, you know, after, after several years of being in these jobs and recognizing the, um, the benefits of, you know, union membership, for instance, and um, the higher pay uh, and the autonomy of, for the first time, making their own money, uh, were not, were not really that excited to give it up. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that was a, a point of contention. Uh, but by and large, the women did uh, give up these, these kinds of jobs that they had occupied during the war. Now, what was, so let's talk about the 1950s when you have, you know, the, the, the image of the American housewife really uh, take full bloom, you know, full bloom right after the war. And uh, we also, we have uh, capitalism, we we have companies really uh, growing fast because people are buying a lot of stuff because they've got homes and now they, you know, the economy's booming how did Jean uh, soften the hard edge image of American business? How did how did her work make people feel better about capitalism? Right. Um, well, I think you know people were sort of uh, there was a a movement against capitalism um, or you know corporate capitalism after uh, the depression, obviously. But by the time uh, the war was over and uh, the manufacturing was booming and everybody was, uh, you know, sort of profiting from the, this economic boom. Uh, people were very willing to forgive and forget and to um, businessmen could again uh, position themselves as American saviors and the American business system uh, was now given sort of the added impetus of, uh, of a nemesis, which was um, the Soviet, um, it was Russia and um, this became, so being a, a sort of free market enthusiast uh, was not only a way to create jobs and give prosperity to everyone, but it was a way to be patriotic as well. And it was all tied in also to, like you said, anti-communism. Yes, absolutely. So, so in, in the way, uh, consumption mm-hmm. becomes part of your individual contribution to fight communism. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, all right. So she was also not only advertising, helping create advertising for the ultimate consumer, but she was also very important in giving advice to uh, businessmen uh-huh. about their customer right? and right. how to approach them and how to think mm-hmm. about them. And can you talk a little bit about that? Did she yeah. develop some new, new uh, unique insights? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's what's interesting about her archive is that we don't get to just see the ads themselves sort of, you know, uh, without context. We get to uh, her, her archive includes all of her, you know, type transcripts of all of her lectures or talks that she would give to um, the, the heads of the companies, the, the uh, salesmen and the, the corporation heads as she uh, tried to convince them to adopt, you know, her, her strategy for advertising their products. So yeah, very much she, um, uh, we get to see how she uh, uses, again, these facts and figures that she, she gleans from her own, uh, the women in her own firm, and also from larger national polling um, to create this composite of a, of a housewife who is dreaming of a husband and children and a, and a safe, sweet home. Um, and so she very much, um, 
convinces these uh, the the corporate heads that they um, should be selling to women through emotions, uh, and she she called it heart tug copy. So, uh, and her her whole sort of shtick that she would bring to company after company when she wanted to, uh, you know, convince them how to sell things was to say that women don't care about anything much beyond their own house, their own household. They care about their husband, they care about their kids, they care about their dogs and cats, they care maybe about their neighborhood, you know, that there aren't juvenile delinquents out roaming the streets. Other than that, they, they don't care. So the thing that you have to do in order to get their attention is to tell them that if they buy your product, this will make their home happier, this will make their family happier, this will validate them as good wives and mothers. Um, so she pretty much hammered home. That was that was her, you know, it was a pretty simple technique, but it was the technique that she used in all of her major um successful advertising campaigns. Okay. So I, I'm going to ask you this, this is kind of getting mm-hmm. off track, but <clears throat> during your, what you, what you've investigated, um, uh, did she ever express any, any opinion or a feeling about women's status in society, political status, economic status? Did she ever, or did she just think the way things were split in between what men did and what women did was perfectly fine? She thought it was perfectly fine. She, um, yeah, no, she, and, you know, she herself, if you asked her and she, she will say this because once she became, you know, she was appointed the first vice president and then the first, um, uh, executive director of BBDNO. And she would often get interviewed for, for newspapers about, because she was this sort of paragon, this sort of example of the successful, uh, executive who was also a wife and mother. And she would always say without fail that my first job is being a wife and mother. My second job is, is, is what I do in advertising. And in fact, what I do in advertising is really not different from what I do as a wife and mother, because I, I bring my expertise as wife and mother to my job, my service job as an advertiser. Um, so she, but she, you know, always thought that women should accept the, and, and, you know, she had this sort of almost, you know, genetic theory that women are caring creatures who care about feelings and family and men are not. And so that's just a, a basic fact. And that explains why women like to stay home and do stay home and should stay home because they're better at it. So I know that the, that feminism at that point was sort of in the doldrums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. So she, you've never probably seen her even say that word, feminism. Um, no, no. Mm-mm. Okay. All right. So she's, she's, in a way, she's a lot like a lot of other women of her generation who are very successful in different fields, you know, right. who in a way sort of skirted all that. And in a way, they thought saw themselves as an exception yes, to absolutely. other women. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly like other women, even though they might try to justify what they were doing. They were right. not like other women and they didn't really see themselves as part of that. But she seemed right. to be working extra hard to be part of that. Yeah. And she, but you know, she, she also, she was very dismissive of anyone who women who complained about workplace harassment or workplace um, prejudice, right. That they couldn't climb the corporate ladder because they were women. And she would often say, you know, if if you worked hard enough, you would. If you, if if we if we look at the executive suite and see it's all men, it's because women don't want to be there because they're not willing to put in the time and the hours. 
Okay. We've heard that before. Yeah. Okay. Or, and we still hear it. Yeah. So what I wanted to know about that, there was something, there was a little vignette that you talked about what she expected from the women that worked for her. She had a very specific image of what she thought their demeanor, the way they dressed, yeah. everything. She had a program of right. how they were, and if they were too aggressive, she's going to yeah. not like that. Can you talk about that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. She, um, and you know, she, you, you see this also, uh, she often w- would talk about this. She would give talks to women's groups who in some way, shape or form were, were related to advertising. So for instance, she gave a talk to uh, women who worked at DuPont, uh, DuPont uh, Chemicals, which was a client, a BBDO client. Um, she talked to sort of aspiring advertising women. Um, and she, yeah, she had this, uh, she very much had this idea that uh, she, she called them he-men uh, which were <laughs> women who acted like men. And she said that was absolutely the wrong way to get it, uh, to go about getting what you wanted. It was, it was ugly. It was impolite. Uh, and standing up on your soapbox and yelling about how you were being discriminated against was, was never going to get you anywhere and just made you a nuisance. And she uses that word. You, you make yourself a nuisance. Um, and so uh, she, yeah, she said the best thing to do is just sort of play by the rules work hard. And, you know, if you, uh, are seen as a nice colleague, someone who doesn't, who doesn't sort of throw sand in the gears, um, then you will advance, even though, you know, she could see by looking around her that that didn't happen to too many people. Wow. Okay. And, and that, that, that line of thinking is still so much evident today. Yes. Because the the workplace was designed for men and therefore, you had to proceed in a way that accommodated that. Right. You couldn't uh, try to challenge or change it or any of that. No. So what, so what happened with television, television comes along and television advertisement is a little bit different than mm-hmm. print. Mm-hmm. Um, how did she uh, use uh, television? television ads? Yeah. You know, she, she mostly, um, I, I think uh, she, she mostly stuck to print. I mean, that was mostly her her realm. Although she, you know, in the in the case of Betty Crocker advertisements, that that was a huge uh, business, the Betty Crocker business or General Mills more generally. And they actually General Mills sort of divvied out their their advertising to different advertising firms. BBDNO didn't have the uh, the only the exclusive. Um, sort of contract with them, but they did have the Betty Crocker contract. Um, so she, she pretty much is known mostly for her print okay. uh, advertisement. Yeah. Okay. So now we've, uh, we talked about how social science was involved at, the, at creating sort of this idea composite of the average American. Mm-hmm. And then we've got this, uh, new thing happening with popular psychology and positive thinking. Right. How did that serve advertisers? Um, well, I think it, you know, uh, pop, pop psychology and uh, positive thinking is sort of an outgrowth of prosperity gospel mm-hmm. thinking. So, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, he sort of um, is is a direct, you know, a direct successor to to Gene's father, really, and with the, the idea that if you if you just think uh, positively and if you think good thoughts and if you you know are, are pray to pray to God. Uh, and concentrate, you, uh, gifts will be given unto you. Um, and so I think to that extent, you know, 
even even in its more sort of secularized forms that you know it did, didn't necessarily have to be rooted in Christianity, but just the idea that you could use your mind to influence people and you could use your charisma and your charm to to get places and to influence people. Um, this was very much you know sort of part of advertising's uh, allure, right? And advertising would often um, sort of use these pop psychology tricks in order to uh, appeal to appeal to its its customers. So um, th- there's a real affinity between what uh, advertisers were doing at this time and the sort of therapeutic pop psychology feel good um, mantras that were that were being passed around. It kind of reminds me. It, it's the idea that if you buy you buy a product, you're going to feel better right. about it. Life, you know how advertisements are generally speaking always about making you happier. Even pharmaceuticals today, you can see it. Somebody's got some dreadful disease, but if you take this medicine that we're going to sell you, you're going to feel as happy as the people that they're showing in the advertisement. They're always playing with their children and their dog and they're smiling. Like, like right. there's nothing wrong with them. Right. Right. You're going, they look perfectly healthy. I don't think they need what you're trying to sell, you know, yeah. trying to sell. So anyway, so that's, that's really interesting. So I want to go further to the lighter part of her life. Uh, she was so enmeshed and, 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 you know, deeply into this ideology of, of uh, American prosperity and consumption. Mm-hmm. And we're going to almost, gone, we're going to fix the world by just, yeah if we just consume the right products, right. you're going to make things happy. You make your home clean and healthy. You're going to look beautiful. Your children are going to be beautiful, healthy because right. they've eaten Betty Crocker cake. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, but then she becomes she, at the end of towards the end of her life, she becomes disillusioned with this whole thing. Right. Can you talk about the process that she went through to get that, to, to get become disillusioned and where did she arrive? Where did she arrive? Yeah. So um, she retired kind of early. She retired in um, 1963 when she was 59. Um, and I couldn't find anything in the archive to indicate why she retired then. Um, you know, I presumably at that point, she, she had grandchildren that she was very close to and she you know wanted to spend more time with them. But in any case, she retired and she did what many women, suburban white middle class women did at that time, which was to throw herself into volunteer activities um, and one of the uh, one of the organizations that she was the most involved with was the, the National Council on National Women's Council, um, which was a, a nationwide uh, women's organization that um, sort of pushed for the kind of community housekeeping projects that um, I was talking about earlier when I talked about nineteenth um, century sort of women's activism. Um, so they were, you know, interested in. Um, helping alleviate poverty in the cities and um, also advancing the cause of women. But um, they were very much uh, sort of in that vein of sort of social uplift. Um, and at the heart of that organization, which did was doing now it's the 1960s, was doing a lot of work with the civil rights movement. She sort of had a, a political awakening. Um, and especially with the passage of the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which which granted uh, African Americans, but also women, um, special uh, equal equal protection under the law, and I I don't know why she had to leave the corporate world, but I think to understand that the, that those equal protections were necessary, and that sort of buying and the capitalist mechanism w- wasn't enough to make them go away, to make misogyny and and race prejudice go away, which she had sort of 
uh, facilely believed. Um, but once she, you know, had taken her distance from from advertising and sort of gotten down into the nitty gritty of what what it looked like to to march for um, racial justice or to you know lobby for women's right to um, to advance in the workplace without being sexually harassed, she she began to yes question absolutely question the sort of simplicity with which she had earlier thought these problems could be solved. Okay, so in thinking about Jean Wade Rindlob, what is what is a takeaway for the reader? What is it that you want them to to really get about her and about her industry and the development of all that? Yeah. Well, I guess I mean I guess why she's very interesting to me is because she um, she is someone who uh, sort of splits the difference between the uh, the two sort of ways in which feminism has gone since second wave feminism, uh, you know, that the, on the one hand you have sort of liberal feminism and on the other hand you have conservative, sometimes they call themselves feminism, some, sometimes they don't, but that they're, um, the, the sort of a political appeal of womanhood and femininity has always been um, sort of bifurcated in this way. And when you look at Jean, you think, uh, that by the time, you know, given her, given her career and everything that she says about the free market system and about, um, uh, and about capitalism, that she would be one of these sort of social conservatives who, you know, sort of a Goldwater gal type in the, in the 1960s, that she would be very much sort of in favor of, uh, a federal, federal government getting its hands off, uh, the private sphere and, you know, women and families being, uh, to being able to direct their, their homes uh, left to their own devices, um, but she doesn't. She 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 pivots and um, becomes the opposite. She she understands that uh, without government intervention, in the in the case of the Civil Rights Act, uh, and uh, in in the case of the economy, um, these kinds of hopes that she originally had of of sort of a free and equal America would would never happen. So I, I guess that's what I, I think is interesting is that she shows that there were sort of two paths. By which you know a woman sort of advocating for for women's moral voice in American politics could have gone, and she goes. She takes takes an unexpected route. Okay, well, Ellen, thank you for your time. Thank you for for sharing these thoughts with us, and and recommend the book to uh, to the listeners oh, yeah. because it's really interesting. I think there's a lot there for people. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.